0: Oh, you're a deep-thinking woman. It's good to see. I don't know that I'm going to be able to answer these with great satisfaction because of the time. But I'll give it a go. So, uh, the first one, uh, what is the difference between things being created in Jesus and through Jesus? I I actually think probably he's just building an argument. But if I were to have a go at possibly a fine distinction, I think that in Jesus is that Jesus is part of the creation. It's not just God the Father, but he himself is involved in creation itself. And the through Jesus, the, probably the finer distinction would be that it's not as though God the Father is not in creation. So I think catches the Trinity in one sense. Uh, God the Father is working in Jesus, um, so Jesus himself is actively involved. He's also working through Jesus. But really, at the end of the day, it's saying the same thing. Does that make sense? Sometimes I think we... Uh, I think you do have to pay attention to words, especially words like therefore, right, and and or but. But in this instance, I I think probably their finer points saying that God the Father is involved in creation, creating through Jesus, but Jesus himself is actually also involved in. So that's where you get the in Jesus. Does that make sense? Could be wrong, but I have a feeling that's what it is. Um, if everything is made for Jesus how do we understand the purpose of the lives of non-Christians? Excellent question. Uh, I don't know that the Bible gives us the answer except to say and there are many things that I think uh, sometimes we have to only go by what we see in the text and and we need to leave some things to we just don't know. Um, it seems to me that every everything in all of creation God has made for his glory. Actually to try and understand what does his glory mean? What does the glory of God mean? Uh, that ultimately he is honoured somehow, uh, that he's praised somehow, it's very difficult to understand how it is that the eternal judgment of someone can bring God glory. I guess there are a few ways the Bible does tell us that that brings God glory in that it shows that God is completely just all the time. He can't overlook sin. Uh, so in that sense uh, we have a just judge And so in that sense, it gives glory and honour to his character, doesn't it? Because if he were to be the kind of judge that we often criticise in the media, a judge who overlooks wrongdoing, then we would be able to dishonour him, wouldn't we? But beyond that, um, the only other thing I can think of is that people are created in the image of God. And even our filthy rags, even the things that we do, that. Like, so let's take those, um, those people who rescued those boys out of that cave. Then, like, let's assume they're all non-Christians. We don't know that, right? But let's assume they're all non-Christians. Are they bringing God glory by doing something good? Yes. Is it going to save them? No. Right? So we, we do need to talk about um, even our filthy rags, even our good works cannot save us. The Bible is very clear on that. Um, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. But... Do the good things that we do, where we reflect God's good character, where someone gives their life for someone else, does that bring glory to God? Of course it does. Uh, They don't glorify God, they think it's their own bravery. (laughs) But we know better, don't we? But beyond that, I, I find it hard to know that the Bible gives us many other reasons why it's glorifying to God, except for maybe those two. So it's a bit of a mystery, it's like the question, What comfort is there when a non-Christian dies? What comfort can you give? It's very difficult to know, isn't it, except that God is good and always just and that he loves that person more than we do and that he will only ever do what is right for that person ultimately, even though it's gonna involve judgment for the non-Christian, it's very complicated. And I I would hesitate to go beyond those two reasons um, what have been the challenges and benefits of being a pastor's wife? Oh gosh, how many else do you want to stay? Oh, I'm going to come back to that in a second. <laughs> Can you give us a few tips to speak the truth with kindness when dealing with controversies and conflict? Um, for example, universalism and elections. Everyone know what I mean? Universalism is the idea that um, ultimately everyone is saved. And election is the idea that only certain people are saved who are chosen and elect by God. I think with any topic, to be really honest, I think the first thing you need to examine, we all need to examine, is our motives. Why am I arguing? <laughs> what am I trying to prove? And, the, and, and, you know, sometimes we might start the argument with good motives, but after a while it's because we want to win. <laughs> so I think at the point where, we, where our motives are getting mixed, we need to pull out or we need to ask God to help us to change our motives at that point. It's very difficult to do midway through an argument because usually our pride gets in the way. So I think in any discussion we need to be motivated by love of the other rather than love of ourselves and winning the argument. It's got, it's got to be the number one thing. And also to realize that sometimes with controversies like that silence is actually the best answer and that is to... Um, Sometimes you just have to let the other person think that they've won um, because you're trying to let them know you're listening. I think listening is an excellent thing that we all need to work on, some of us more than others, especially those of us who are extroverted. (laughs) Um, And to be an empathetic listener is to try and actually understand why that person is putting that view forward, to put yourself in that person's thinking actually makes you a lover of that other person rather than, I want to put my view forward. Um, and I think in, just in terms generally, like say with rebuke, um, has anyone ever read The Peacemaker by Ken Sand? S-A-N-D-E. It's one of the books that I use in the course Ministry Training for Women. It's about conflict. But I think it gives you really excellent skills for this whole topic of rebuking but also conversation that can get heated. and. Um, I think it, it helps you to see what I've just said, which is that ultimately the glory of God is, needs to be forefront in our minds in any conflict and in any discussion. How is what I'm saying going to bring glory to God? How is this going to love this person? Um, so I think motive is actually probably the best key for speaking about that. And also humility. So. You've, you've got to have the humility to recognize that you don't always have the answers and to be able to say, I just don't know the answer to that. And at that point I think you can go to what you do know, which is the gospel, right? Uh, you're not always going to have the answer to everything that someone gives you and the humility to admit, I just don't know the answer to that, I'm happy to go away and think about it and then pick up the conversation with you another point. But uh, I think if you come across as arrogant as knowing all the answers and as unloving because you're not listening and certainly calling names. I think, uh, you know, Facebook and social media are just wonderful examples of how not to have a discussion. Um, I've been, I think I, in the time that I've been involved online, um, I don't think I've ever seen a discussion that ultimately has been completely beautiful. Um, people get hurt. And the face-to-face is much more important, I think. Um, if, if I read something that I think, gee, that person's really misunderstood that, or I can see that they're aching, I usually usually send them a private message and have the conversation that way. So can I at least encourage you to um, try and have your conversations offline? Having said that, I think there are some people out there who are almost missionaries in social media who seem to be able to have the ability to disconnect And actually just argue the point rather than argue the person. Um, And most of us, I think, are not very good at that. And if you are the sort of person who gets easily hurt or anxious about that stuff, then don't have the discussion. The world doesn't depend on you winning the argument on Facebook or me winning the argument on Facebook. Just be very careful with your social interaction, social media interaction. Um, Should we be concerned that there aren't always enough godly Christian men in society? Of course. And churches? Of course. (laughs) Uh, because they are needed as leaders. Now, I'm I'm assuming the question is that there aren't enough in society and churches together. Because you won't want to correct me because you won't want to admit who you were that read the question, right? So that's the way I'm taking it. Yes, of course, Um, we should be concerned. I guess um, partly depends where you sit on this spectrum of men and women. Uh, I sit very conservatively, but um, so what I mean by that is I I think the Bible teaches male headship in family and in the church, however I'm not someone who doesn't believe in women being involved in ministry. (laughs) So I I think you can coexist with both of those, even though I often get accused of actually um, not promoting women in ministry, I think I embody women being in ministry, right? Uh, And I encourage it and I encourage theological training and I've, like in the time that I've been at Chatswood, we've been at our church nearly 20 years now. Uh, I've said to Jeff, unless God tells us otherwise the next move is to the cemetery because I can't stand the thought of moving again, but you know, I guess we'll probably, we started in uh, 2000, I started a women's Bible study with four women and we've now got over 60 women on a Wednesday morning. So in that time, I think I've trained up between 15 and 20 leaders So I don't think anyone could accuse me of not um, being pro-women being in ministry. However, I do think um, we need to raise up men to lead our churches and our families. And I partly believe that, um, without going into the, you know, exegetical stuff, is to say that the way that God runs his household of the church, he sees reflected in the biological family. Why? I guess part of the reason you might be asking this question is why aren't there? And I think there are a multitude of reasons. In our church, when we came, it was the women doing most of the ministry. And um, it's part of the reason why I stopped co-leading services with my husband when we we started our evening church because we wanted to allow space for the men to step up. The women are competent. And if they stayed home, they've often got... uh, time to dedicate to ministry that the men don't and uh, because they're out working in paid jobs. And so in order to create space, we've allowed the men to step up and lead the services in our church. Now, that isn't to say that in future there is no room for a woman to co-lead with a man or something like that. Partly depends what you see the role of, you know, someone leading a service is. But um, in some ways, it's partly because women are doing so much. And sometimes that requires us stepping back a bit. I mean, I know that as a fairly omnicompetent kind of person, it's very easy for me to just step all over people who are slower coming forward. I often notice this, that like, if you're praying in a group, often the women jump in first. And I think it's great that those women pray. But it's also a good idea to allow room for the men who are shyer and quieter, um, to just give them opportunity to step up. So I think we as women, as controversial as this is going to sound, but I've already given you that I'm pro-women doing ministry, okay? So hear it through that lens. Don't come up to me and don't put it on Facebook that I've then said that I'm anti-women pray because I'm not. What I'm saying is when we're omnicompetent, we sometimes don't allow space for men because we squash them with our competency. Um Don't hear me saying women shouldn't be confident. It's not what I'm saying. But I am saying it's like a wife who just constantly makes all the decisions because her husband is slow in making those decisions. Sometimes we just need to be patient, don't we? And allow them. So sometimes I hear um, mums say to me, you know, my husband, he never does devotions with the kids. And I think, yeah, that's an issue and it's worth talking about. And I go, well, what do you do? And of course, he's walked in, he's dog tired, right? And the kids are running around screaming everywhere. He's trying to get them in the bath. By the time he gets them out of the bath, the bathroom's totally, he's trying to pick up all the towels so he doesn't get into trouble for the fact that he's left the towels on the ground, right? And then she goes, and you haven't done devotions. And I think, oh, my goodness, like, you know, give him some space. Like, why don't you pick up the towels and allow room for your husband to sit on the edge of the bed and do the devotions with the kids? You see what I'm saying? I I just think we could just expect everything to be done in a second. Right? And it can't always be done that second, and not every man is built the same way, right? so um I, I think part of the problem is us and and I'll tell you what there's a book called "Total Truth" by Nancy Piercy. It's quite an old book now, and it's a very thick book, but don't worry about reading the whole book, but there's one chapter in the book that's about um it's about the culture walls, right? And I remember giving it to Jeff, and it just opened his eyes, and it opened my eyes in the same way. We talk about work and the separation of the genders like it's always existed. Like Eve was always in the kitchen and Adam was always out in the fields. It's a nonsense. The Industrial Revolution is what brought that about. Until the Industrial Revolution, and I'm talking mainly Anglo kind of society now, but more generally speaking as well. Like I'm not talking about the little tri- aboriginal tribe. I'm speaking in generalizations now, okay? But in that time period, until the Industrial Revolution, most people worked side by side. So if you were a butcher and you married a butcher, you would learn the skill of your husband. And in fact, that was a wonderful thing for women because if they became widows, they had often learned the art of their husband or the trade of their husband. And they had a business that would actually support their family and children grew up around them. Uh, They, you know, they just, you know, I don't know who changed the nappies, but it was all together, right? But when the Industrial Revolution happened, what happened? The men went out to factories. That's when work became, you go out with your lunchbox and you come home, you know, and you clock in and clock out. And, and then women were mostly at home then. And so they, that's how it happened that the women, that religion became known as women's work. Because they were at home getting involved in all the church ministry that was going on, and the men were out doing these jobs, paid jobs, right? So that's where the idea of this separation of the genders came about. It's actually a revolutionary thought because what it showed was that the men became occupied with this work and it's not because they were slackos that they didn't get involved in religion. It's because the women were then at home. There was this separation of life together. And that's a very important thing to remember. you know, I think I think we need to be aware that we need to give room for men to step up and lead and build up their confidence. I often say this to women: Look, if I was having a conversation with a man, I'd be beating him over the head in this conversation, going, "Step up, lead." You know, if I was a bloke in that conversation. But I'm speaking to a bunch of women, and I'm I, like, the temptation is for us to bag the men out. But most men sincerely do want to raise their children as Christians. Most men don't even know how to read the Bible to their children. They don't. Most women in my church don't know how to read the Bible to their children. Most women in my church, and it's a fairly good church, are not reading the Bible for themselves, let alone reading it to their children. When I say to people, and I'm not boasting now because I'm about to tell you something good about my husband, so not about me, when I say to people that my children, when my husband went to hospital this year because he um, hurt his arm and he had surgery it was the first night in their entire lives that he has not read the Bible to them they have not known a day where Jeff hasn't read the Bible to them and can, did you know any men who can say that like it's rare that is rare but it is possible when I then, when we do seminars and we say how do you do devotions most people have no idea I'll tell you why, because most people hear the word devotion and they think all your children sit there like this And they listen carefully to the devotion, and they answer all the questions. Yes, it was Elijah who set me fire, and it was on verse 32. That's what they think. One day we videoed um, Jeff doing a devotion with our kids, and we also had another family sit in. And it was when my children were all little, so we had four children, five and under, right? And... One was crawling under the table, one was sitting on top of Jeff's shoulders, picking the nits out of his hair. He didn't really have nits, right? And, you know, one spilt their porridge and, you know, and I'm trying to shush, shush the other one up. That's what devotions were like for most of our family life. They were. And even now, you know, Bianca has trouble concentrating and she's going, "Mom, mom, split ends, I've got split ends." you know? And the dog is there and one of the kids is going... Like this and Jeff's trying to be patient and they're 17 down to 11. but you know what it is it's just bread and butter every day you read the Bible every day you read the Bible every day you model it to them you know and there's no perfect devotional time with family so if you just teach men in your church and women in your church to do that that is a start if you just give them an appropriate, have you ever seen someone try and read the King James version to children it happens. Because they don't know what children's... If you've got a children's worker, one of the first things they have to do... I've been leading the kids' ministry at church this year. One of the first things you have to do is you have to show parents, when they're three, you read this one that has five words on every page with nice pictures. When they're ten, you read this one. And then they say to you, but what if you've got a 17 and an every year old a 2-year-old and a 1-year-old? What do you read then? And you've just got to be able to say, you don't always go for the lowest common denominator, but you need to be able to include them somehow. And you get the older children maybe to read the passage so that they feel integrated. Do you see what I'm saying? That conversation that I've just had with you takes hours, you know, in a seminar. And I reckon most men go to work, they come home, and and most of them are struggling with confidence. To actually be in the workplace, you would know as working women how difficult it is, especially as you get older because There's no loyalty anymore. So when you hit 50 and you lose your job, what are the chances of you getting another job? And so men are struggling with their confidence. If things are not going right in their marriage, they're the two big areas that men struggle with. Their confidence to provide for their family and their confidence as a husband. And if sex isn't happening regularly, excuse me for those who are single, but you need to hear it anyway. um, If sex isn't happening regularly, they feel like a failure there too. So the two big areas where they feel failures, right? And so yes, we do need more men in our churches stepping up. The first place it's got to start is in our homes. And then we need to allow space for them in our churches. And we need to be building them up and training them and encouraging them. And the best thing you can do as women is not criticise them. is actually to build them up and to say thank you and to encourage them. Look, Train them and make sure that you encourage them and you'll see more positive results by being positive. If that's not the answer you wanted to hear, I'm sorry. I could have given you a long list of where men fail. A very long list, I'm sure. I'm an Eve. But um, I just don't think it's helpful in the long run, even though I feel it intensely myself sometimes. Especially because I have such high standards of myself that I impose those high standards on everyone else. And that is a downfall. It's a weakness to the strength of my personality. Um, and I need to temper it, temper it with godliness and prayer for people. Um, is the, if the battle is settled like the war in Germany, then are the people in hell still rebelling in their hearts? Do they say Jesus is Lord, but I don't want to be with him? If this is true, how can it bring God glory? People eternally rebelling and hating God a bit like Satan is now. And can I just say that that question uh, goes with this question. Colossians one seventeen. if everything exists because of Jesus, what is hell without Jesus? Does it just not exist? Um, it seems to me that when you read those passages, so the person who speaks most about hell is Jesus himself. Like of the 12 times that the main word, there are three different types of words, the main word is used 12 times, 11 times Jesus speaks of it. So I definitely think it's real. Um, Every time he speaks of it, the words that are used, although in the English they might give the sense of destroy as in annihilate, it seems to me that it's an ongoing uh, verb that actually is more like the idea of despair and loss and torment and gnashing and grief, ongoing grief. So I don't believe in annihilationism. I think when you look, you, when you study the Greek words, um, I, don't, I don't think it comes to a conclusion. And contextually, um, you know that passage with you know uh, Abraham, in the bosom of Abraham, and you get Lazarus? Do you remember that passage? Everyone remember it in the New Testament? It seems like an ongoing kind of thing, even though that's probably talking about Hades. So that's the other word. So it seems to me there are three categories. There's the Hades category, which is the time now where the dead are. And for Christians or the people who are saved they're, they're in, a, in the bosom of Abraham is the term that's used which is a place of comfort and Paul speaks of it as being present with the Lord. Yeah? and So it's a positive thing. That's where you, we're awaiting the final resurrection of our bodies. But at the same time you get you know the man who's thirsting with Lazarus there and it seems to be the holding place for the dead where Jesus went uh, in that three day period. Um, then you get one other word that's only we used once, so I'm not going to even harp on that, and then you get that, uh, that other word. So it seems to me that it's not annihilation, and it seems to me it's a very real place. And can I make this one point? We often use the word resurrection of the dead in Jesus, you know, the resurrection, as I spoke of it from Colossians, as though it's only Christians who are resurrected. It's just a shorthand way really of saying resurrected to heaven or what we call heaven as in the new creation with God. But actually the Bible teaches the resurrection of both the Christian and the non-Christian um, because if if the non-Christian was not resurrected there would be no hell, right? Does everyone make everyone understand that? If, if, if what my mother-in-law believes which is that you die and you rot and you become a newer, well then what, you know, there's no point about talking about future judgment. So... Both are resurrected at the return of Jesus, but Jesus talks about it. It's like the sheep and the goats. Some to eternal joy, using Jesus' language in the parables, and some to eternal torment. And that's where this part of the question comes in about you know, what is it if, if Jesus is not present. And it seems to me that it's, it's a little bit like Of course, Jesus is present because Jesus is everywhere. It's not as though, like you know, it'll be the non Christians in the pub and the non Christians can't go, like that Jesus can't go in to his own pub, right? That they're all there having a good time. It's the it's the absence of goodness. It's not receiving any of the blessings that come from God. It's the judgment, whatever form that punishment takes, and we don't know. We we get imagery, don't we? We get gnashing of teeth. And it seems to me that yes, it's true that everyone will bow the knee to Jesus, but it's what this person has written who's written the question. It's a very intelligent question because it's not as though they will be confessing Jesus as Lord in the salvation sense. They will still be rebelling, but they will not be able to be rebelling like they are here on earth, where they are enjoying the blessings that God has given the world, prevenient grace, you know, grace that extends. Beyond Christian people, like so, the sun shines on non-Christians as well as Christians now, doesn't it? But whatever is good will not be present in hell. They will not get the blessings that come from knowing God and being with God. And there is a sense of judgment. I remember we were standing in—I don't know if it was the Sistine Chapel or something—when we went to Italy one time. And if you if you look at the chapel, you know the scenes of hell. If you've ever been, you can look it up and Google it. You don't even have to go now, right? But. Um, And Jeff goes, I don't know that the Bible, because you get all these really tormented pictures. But I think Michelangelo was trying to give visual representation to the picture language that we have in the Bible. And it seems to me, it's not good. (laughs) You don't want to go there. Whatever it is, you don't want to go there. How does all that bring God glory? Well, I think it's like that first question. I don't know that we know. Uh, how, How is it? How does it give God glory that there are people suffering? Well, I guess, my best guess that that would be that God deserves all glory because he created everything and he is the supreme ruler of the world and these people would not exist without him having given them life and it's like when we see a murderer punished, isn't it? There is righteousness and justice in that and there's also this element that... The Bible and particularly the Psalms often talk about vengeance and the fact that the the Christian actually ultimately rejoices in the vengeance that God will one day bring in. Now I I really struggled with that for a very long time until I met a man from Nigeria when we were living in Italy and he told us his story and said that um, his wife had been raped multiple times and two of his children had been killed and all his family had been wiped out because they were Christians. And I talked to him about forgiveness. He said, Forgiveness? You've got to be joking. He said to me, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I thought, Oh, you know, I was a bit taken aback by that. But actually, as I thought about it, I don't think that we rejoice in the sense of, Ha ha, you got what you deserve. Not in that sense, but in the sense that God's enemies will one day, God does not forget his people. He sees the suffering of his people and he will not ignore it. And you know what? It's very easy for us academically in our environment in Australia where we're very comfortable to go, that's not very loving of God. But if your family was being persecuted for their faith in Christ and murdered and raped, you would be calling for the same thing. You would be longing for the day where God does not forget your pain anymore. Anyway, that's a very long, rambly question to a very difficult um, question and answer, long, rambly answer, but I hope it gives you something, I think. But I think the main thing is to try and understand what hell is when Jesus uses it. Very last one. We know reading our Bible every day is a great thing, but doesn't save us or make us closer to God. Oh, you are listening to my talk. Excellent. What is your response to why do we read our Bible? Look, very simply, I mean it's relational. I mean, what, we're saved to be in relationship with God, but then we don't want to hear from him. Well, what do I believe about the Bible then? So 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. The Bible is God breathed. Like, do we believe that the words of the Bible are actually God's words to you? God speaking to you individually in every word of the Bible from Genesis 1 right down to Revelation. Do you believe that? Because if you do, then that's how God speaks to you. God promises to speak to you in his word. And it doesn't matter whether you're reading Leviticus, you know, don't mix your cotton and your linen, or if you're reading you know, the time when we will see God face to face and there will be no more pain or suffering. The whole thing is relevant. It's relational. It's about, I want God to speak to me today. And he does it absolutely 100% of the time in the Bible. And my story about that, do you want me to finish? How many, how many more minutes? Three. Here's my very quick story. I'm going to speak very fast. One time, the day that September 11 happened, I was away and Bible study happened, and the leader had in her group um, a woman from New York who was very upset, and she had family and friends caught up in it. And after a prayer time, they got on with the study. And then i caught an abusive email from one of the members of the group saying, it's your fault because you've trained all these leaders up to be nothing but Bible bashers who have to open the Bible and complete the task, and it was totally unloving and insensitive. She should have cancelled the Bible study for the day and, you know, just concentrated on the need and the hurt from September 11. And I was stumped to know how to reply to, you know, a fairly serious attack. And I rang Ray Gilea, if any of you know him, um, read his books, um, and, he, and I said, What am I going to say, Ray? And he said, Well, you can say this. What that woman was wanting was that every woman should be able to talk about September 11. All go around the group and talk about September 11. But if you shut the Bible, what you're saying is, sorry God, you can't speak today. And that for me nailed it. That's it. That's my view. Every day, every time we meet for Bible study, it doesn't matter what has happened, we open the Bible. Because that is how God speaks to us. And you know, that's an incredible thing that we're saying. That you have God's word. And what does 2 Timothy say? It makes you Wise for salvation. It can equip you to do all the works that God has prepared for you to do by correcting you, training you, teaching you, rebuking you. Do you believe that? Because it is living and active. Hebrews 4, it's living and active like a two-edged sword. It cuts where it needs to and it comforts where it needs to. Do you believe that? Because if you do, then Bible reading is not a negotiable. I just recently had all the women from my kids' ministry, all the young girls, teenage girls over who lead with me, and uh, I gave them this really lovely lunch. What they didn't realise was that I was buttering them up for a hard conversation, right? And then I said, so how are we all going with our Bible reading, you know? And I think only one of them is Anglo, the rest are all Asian. And the answer that I got was, I've got too many assessments to read my Bible every day. You know what? We as women give that answer too. I'm so busy. I'm sleep-deprived. But, you know, well, do you not, don't speak to your husband because you're sleep-deprived? I don't think so. We, if we want to hear from God, then we read his word because that's how he grows us and speaks to us and reveals himself to us. It's how we know him better and understand him more. Yeah? Are you laughing because I'm saying ridiculous things? <laughs> but, um, and of course... We then respond in prayer, don't we? Yeah. Now on the pastor's wife thing, sorry, you'll have to invite me down to Melbourne another time if you want me to speak on that one because I think my time is well and truly up.